Welcome to the State of Sport with me, Ben Karpinski, where I have numerous smart conversations with smart people from the world of sport. Anything ranging from the digital side of things to the on-field, sport is very exciting right now. And I think post-pandemic, we have some incredible opportunities to not only enjoy sport more, but also know a whole lot more about it. In 2022, I wanted to read more books. It's something that I just never got around to, mostly because I have a slight addiction to my my phone. I'll be the first to admit that. And the thing is, when you built up an audience around social media and you built up a reference towards how you consume things being social media based, I'm going to give myself a free pass here and say that maybe I would never have read as many books as I wanted to the last few years. But this year, I'm making a big change. And one of the best books that I've read so far And I say one of the best because I've already read about six or seven books. It is Guns and Needles by Clinton Vandenberg, who is sitting in front of me today. Clinton, thanks so much for joining me today. How's it, Ben? Great to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm terrible at intros. I really am because I hate scripting things. But your book is hugely, hugely impressive. And zero part of me is surprised by this because only you could write a book like this in the South African context. I'm not trying to give your age away here, but you've been around the sporting beat for quite some time. Let's start out by just actually going into that because I kind of got to know you from Twitter and through Supersport, but then I did a bit of research and you go way back, way, way back before I even thought about <laughs> even sport where I was maybe in junior school, still tying my shoelaces. So give us a bit of a background as far as where this all started from you and within sport. Um, you, you, you're very kind, uh, referring to it only obliquely, Ben. Um, so I was a, I was in primary school for the 81 Bok Tour of New Zealand, if that sort of gives you some idea. And The year uh, I was born. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And, and it was around about then that I got really excited about sport, uh, particularly uh, sports like rugby and boxing. And I started pursuing them, being very interested in them. Um, and then throughout school, I was always doing some kind of sport, whether it was rugby or athletics. Those were the two that I pursued. After school, it was boxing. But at the all the while, this, this sort of passion for sport was germinating, and it germinated in two ways. It germinates by, by means of watching it, but then also consuming it. And back in the day, it was newspapers. Sure. So I used to get my little skivvy, you know, the standard six guy, and shoot him off to the shop. I wouldn't give him any money. That was his problem. And he had to buy me the papers daily. So 80s. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> and not only would I read the sports pages, I didn't care about what was on the front pages, but not only did I read them, but I'd, I'd cut out the clippings, you know, and I'd keep the clippings on the have you. And I was in boarding school, but every now and again, I would get out to the Wanderers or to Ellis Park or something, and I'd, I'd go chase rugby players and cricketers for their, their autographs, that kind of thing. Um, and that uh, inculcated in me at a very early age that I wanted to be a sports writer. Um, it really excited me, and I just thought how cool that would be um, because I had a, a love for words and had a love for sport, and I thought that if I could combine those two, it would be fantastic. And um, and equally, I loved I loved reading, you know, so I uh, I loved the written word. Um, and, and I like chatting to sportsmen. I love engaging with them. And more importantly, I love helping tell their stories. So that was the beginning for me. And thankfully it's a love affair that's, that's never ended. So that went into a traditional journalist kind of role then back then as you left school, studied and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So in fact, my very first job was at the stock exchange. I had a mate whose, whose, whose mum worked in personnel and I was sort of uh, jumping around, not sure where I was going to end up. And I uh, ended up working for a company called Matheson and Hollage, uh, not doing anything particularly great, uh, but it was it was a job, it was some cash, and it allowed me to move out of home the day I finished school. Subsequently, about a year or two later, there was an ad, a tiny little ad in the local paper, the Bononi City Times, 
So I rocked up at the Benoni City Times. I did a little test there. It was a handwritten test. I didn't know how to type, of course. It was an old-fashioned typewriter. But they gave me a chance. So I got in at the Benoni City Times, uh, late late 80s, 90s. And, and it was part of a group on the East Rand. So I ended up working for the Brackban Herald, the Boxburg Advertiser. And... Uh, you know, that's how it all started. And it was, it was great fun. It was a heck of an adventure. Occasionally, the news journals would grab me along and we'd go do this little plane crash out in the field or the cat having been run over or something like that. But more importantly, it gave me a great grounding in reporting on sports. So I'd, I'd go cover a Boxburg Athletics Club, you know, where, which was famous for, you know, doing very well at Comrades. I'd go cover Benoni Northern's baseball. I'd go cover bowls, you know, at Benoni Lake Club. Um, at Brackpen, I'd go do boxing, those kind of things. And it was, it was terrific. I'd go to Benoni City Hall. Marcus and Corsi used to put on boxing shows. So those were among the first boxing shows I'd ever go attend. And I didn't realize that at the time I was having great fun, but what I was doing is I was, I was cutting my teeth as a young sports reporter and I was learning about good judgment. I was learning how to tell those stories, how to identify angles, uh, those kind of things. And then from there, it it moved along quite quickly. I, uh, I moved to Joburg to work for Kexton, got a very nice gig, was having great fun, and then got retrenched. So, you know, panic stations. And then Colin Bryden, I reached out to, he was a sports editor of the Sunday Times, very kindly said, come around to my house. This is how it was done in those days. I went around to his house. We had a chat and, and I got a job with the Sunday Times. Uh, very much as a junior uh, sports writer, and I was on the Metro Beats. So I'd go do the local baseball and, and and tennis and hockey and golf. And occasionally there was a there was a club game out in Vrienichen, and I'd go report on that. Um, but but you know, in in between, the senior writers were very generous. They were very kind, and they would allow me to tag along to some of the bigger events, which was pretty cool. And I kept making progress, quite enjoying it. And then pretty soon I was doing the boxing and then I was tagging along as, as Dan Retief's wingman on rugby. And I went to a couple of, of tours overseas with the box. I, I managed to go to the, the 2000 Olympic games in Sydney, uh, cracked a couple of big fights uh, overseas. I went to do Lennox Lewis, Franz Boerter. I did Boerter Tyson in 99, which was a terrific highlight. Um, it, you know, so th- there, there were lots of, lots of really cool things that helped me develop and hone my craft. And I was always very aware of of the need to polish my writing. And that's something I was very conscious about and something I tried really hard to do. Well, there's something so clear about what you're saying there. You attended many things. Journalists nowadays don't get to do that for a variety of reasons. But that is why I think you're so well positioned to write a book like this. Guns and Needles, A Journey into the Heart of South African Sports Steroid and Drug Culture. It really is. What was the sort of process around this? Obviously, isn't your first book um, there's so much that you have done within sports writing so far, but what was the real sort of process around this? Did you have a couple of stories that you felt needed to come out and then a book became of that? Or was this just a, a subject that you felt deserved a book like this? Well, in fact, both. Uh, it was a very long process and it goes back about… 20- I can imagine the research that must have got into this. <laughs> it goes back, truthfully, about 25 years. And I'd specifically round about the 95 World Cup time because it was during that time when the country was in this, this, this great uh, period for the country with the, the vibe around the box and Mandiba and everything. And there was a young girl called Lisa de Villiers. Mm. And Lisa was this little starlet. She was 14 years old, p- uh, pony tails um, and and a, a superstar on the local school circuit cleaning up winning junior national titles she had ambitions to go to the olympics and one of my colleagues martin gillingham on the sunday times he broke the story of lisa testing positive for steroids she was the youngest person in the world to test positive for steroids so it was this enormous hullabaloo 
And uh, in fact, she she appeared at a hearing at which she was suspended the day before. So it was June the 23rd, 1995. She appeared at the hearing at the ASA uh, offices in uh, Bramfontein. Uh, they threw the book at her, but it was, it was a crazy time because the very next day she was a guest of South African Airways. So she mm-hmm. sat in the suite. Her face was painted. There she was screaming for the box and her life was in turmoil. You can just imagine. So, of course, the New York Times ran this on the front page. Sunday Times ran on the front page. And I just, I was, I was utterly intrigued by this. And, but what predated that was in 1988 when Ben Johnson had got done, uh, got done for steroids at, at the Olympics or having won the 100 meter title. Um, and then Lisa, I was very curious. I wondered about her. Uh, but of course, you know, it went out of my mind. But subsequently through the years, I'd either become aware of particularly rugby players and athletes testing positive for steroids. Um, I, I became aware of that and I became quite curious as to what had happened to Lisa. And I'd, I'd always file away the clippings and things like that. I'd, you know, and I just had it under doping or something like that. And it, the file got thicker and thicker and thicker. And as my, my own career progressed, uh, I often checked in with, with various people, um, who had been bust over the years. And it was remarkable. You know, among them people like Johan Ackerman. I drove one day to the police training college and Johan had been bust for Nandrolin. And we sat there and he explained himself. He had, he had an injury and he was stupid because it was like Oku traded steroids. And he said, no, well, I can help you through your injury. And Johan was very naive and he, he, he told his story. And to his credit, unlike a lot of the, the, the characters in the book, Johan was a guy who put his hand up and he said, yeah, listen, you got me. I'm guilty. Um, which is quite, quite seldom happens. So all these things that I pulled together. And then in, in recent years, you had the cases of people like, uh, Chili Boy Ralapele, who got done three times, a very prominent rugby player. You had a Priva Janchi, who was the world rugby young player of the year. He got done. Um, and so I felt that there was something going on. And, uh, I decided to pull all these strands together. I thought it would have the makings of a good book. And so it went back to Lisa, who's pretty much the golden thread because it runs through. Uh, I checked in with her. She wasn't 14 anymore. She was 41. Uh, her life had changed. Her career was gone. Her dad had died. Um, she, in fact, was a mum herself. And so lots had happened to her. And Lisa, to her credit, told me her story. And it was, it remains remarkable. Um, but, you know, pulling all these together, uh, resulted in, in guns and needles, which I, I think tells the full story. Uh, to, to all intents and purposes. Although subsequently, you know, the book, the book came out in February. Subsequently, there have been cases. You know, there are new athletes who've been, who've been nailed. There have been several other bannings. So the story goes on. I don't want to give away too much of the book, but what you just mentioned there was a very brief sort of highlights reel. Um, and you know, as you say, there's been new cases now and there's definitely maybe a version two of this where you can still reference these stories because there's some real great threads of how these things come about. I just want to go back a couple of the steps and, and kind of ask because when I look at steroid use in sport, my first thing I think about is, well, it's hugely competitive. The stakes are higher. People want to succeed. I can totally get it. We'll get to that in a second. But when did sort of doping start? When did drug cheating, as it were, kind of start within sport? Because it was definitely before, like all the stories you mentioned now were sort of mid-90s onwards. Uh, very much so, but they cases that date back to the forties, the fifties, and then you then you go back to the sixties where you had the the East German, the state sponsored doping. That, right. was, that was the hardcore stuff of the sixties. Uh, but you know, there's anecdotal stories of what used to happen in the Tour de France, and that was things like alcohol and you know whatever people just had ideas that would help boost their performance, that kind of thing. But in terms of it becoming 
engineered, becoming quite cynical, was from the 60s onwards, you know, with the Stasi, the secret police uh, from East Germany. Uh, certainly through through the 70s, Eastern Europe, a couple of world records still stand because of that. And then uh, in more recent years, the Russian state-sponsored stuff. Uh, so it's been around for 50, 60-odd years. So just on that, do you think that there's, a, there's too much stuff on the sort of banned lists? And do you think that um, the trace elements that people get bust for are a little bit too harsh? Because I always think that as well. It's like, what if there was less stuff you got busted for? Because when you say like traces come up in, in someone's urine or whatever, and then they get banned and then they cry foul, obviously. Is it a case of any kind of trace, any quantity you're bust? Is, is that how it works? Yeah, it is. And and you quite it's it's a very good question, man, because those amounts are often minuscule. Yeah. I mean you couldn't see them with the naked eye, that's the thing. And uh increasingly what I've found is that because the supplement industry locally is unregulated, so any rubbish goes in there. So I'm a believer in strict liability. So whatever's found in your body, you're responsible for. But equally, uh, uh many, many athletes, in fact, Probably the majority, they say, listen, my substance, my, my supplements were, were tainted. There's no question about that. Um, so th- the one problem is about having tainted supplements definitely goes on. It's quite difficult to, to prove. I think there should probably be a little bit of leeway. You know, when you're talking about those trace amounts, it's crazy. But remember also some of those, those, those uh, substances you talk of are masking agents. Right. Okay. So, so, you know, there, there's a greater evil at play. Yeah. So what's being picked up is the masking agent. So that's suggestive of something else. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to say that what has got it wrong because I think they have a, that's the world anti-doping agency. I think they have a tremendously difficult job and, and they have to struck, struck a quite a fine balance. You know, they're either, do you say, well, a little bit of dope is okay. A little bit of juice is okay. Or do you say absolutely zero tolerance mm. for any of it? It's uh, it's quite a tough one. It is kind of tough. And the criminal mind is always two steps ahead of the general kind of game. Now, one of the big things that come out, like Apiru Janti was a good example. I think his default reaction was tainted supplements. Now, a lot of the stuff from my understanding is actually quite expensive. So the chance of this, I don't know, these kind of steroids or whatever these these, these agents are coming into a, a supplement, I mean, it's quite rare, isn't it? Because why would a manufacturer have those kind of things in their manufacturing loop, so to speak? Yeah, I've often wondered about that as well because the one common thing is that – I mean, it has changed a little bit because it used to be your your, your kind of upper-income people who used to use steroids or things like that. But that's changed, and I was I was assured of that by people like uh, John Patricios and uh, Khalid Khalant of the SA Institute for Drug-Free Sport. There's no question. Um, so it is, a, it's, it is a little bit of an anomaly about why, why supplement users would, in fact, use quite expensive ingredients. They cost money. My only thought is that reputation could help them because somebody could go, you know, an elite athlete could go off and say, I've had incredible results using this. Um, that's my supposition, but uh, is it is it based in reality? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. That I mean, the whole supplement game has just expanded and just absolutely gotten a little bit too big. I work in marketing. Mm. I know what sells things. I know the smoke and mirrors that go behind these things. Everybody wants to look big and wants to look strong. I think perpetuated on top of that is like superhero movies in Hollywood. Those guys are all on juice. I mean, I don't have to put you on the spot here and ask if they are. <laughs> I, I mean, I did a little bit of research on human growth hormone. And put it this way, human growth hormone is very popular in Hollywood. 
I bet. Uh, you know, there, there's no question about it. Of course, you see, you see those, those images on the big screen and it becomes aspirational. That's sure. what you want to look like. Uh, but equally, you see those, you see those, uh, big gorillas in the gym. And you know, when you work out and, you know, I go to gym and you know who's natural and who isn't, you yeah. know, it, instinctively it becomes very easy to recognize. Well, it really is. And there's all these pressure on social media as well. I know I had this conversation about Liver King recently. And for me, the Liver King is interesting because he's more entertainment than anything else. Sure. But people keep saying you can't take him seriously because he's on all the steroids. Like he's about to burst into flames. But there's like a lot of social pressure as well. And I think. The first kind of aspect that I really want to get into on our interview is high school sports. And in South Africa, there appears to be a, a steroid problem. Now, what constitutes a problem is obviously up for debate. But the fact of the matter is that kids are impressionable in high school. They're taking steroids to look good first and foremost. I was amazed by the fact that when I was much younger, I was dating a girl who had a brother in matric and he was taking steroids. I said, well, what sport does he play? And she said, nothing. It was literally for the matric vax. He was taking steroids and he was getting big. And he was going to the gym. The guy did not even care about sport, but it was about looking good. And that was a really big eye opener for me. But then you, then you look at, um, high school sports. You got one chance. You got one tiny window to make an impression to turn pro. You don't suddenly go kind of like rugby. I'll see how it goes up and down. Maybe when I'm 25, I'll turn pro. You've got Craven week. You've got your first team senior year, so to speak. You've got to make that impact. So when I look at things like that, I just think, wow, how do we not maybe even have a bigger story problem at, uh, around this because of all the pressure involved? And then from reading your book, getting the insights that parents are in, in with this, coaches are in with this because they are sometimes the ones supplying these kids. Is the problem maybe even bigger because we can't properly test it? Or is this something that we'll debate for eternity right now? <laughs> well, you know, you pose, you ask the question, you know, is the problem bigger? I, I dare say it probably is. Uh, and, and you, you intro it by talking about the social pressure and there's no question vanity plays a, a huge role. Um, I came across a case of a, of a school in KZN, which wasn't a particularly good sports school. In fact, they were quite indifferent to sport, but they had, they had a disproportionate number of boys on steroids and it was discovered they, they were juicing up for the beach. Mm. Exactly as you say, they didn't care about performance. So it's and, this whole environment that's being created. Sure. Yeah. But it, it creates a strange dichotomy for the, the, uh, the, the guys who are chasing or, you know, the, the testers because they say, but hang on, we can't ping you for, for, for performance or trying to skew performance because you're not performing. You know, you're not an athlete. So, you know, that creates a, a bit of a challenge. The interesting thing for me. So I documented several schoolboy cases and uh, a couple of craven weeks where it was clear it was rife, but subsequently, uh, post the publication of the book, I've chatted to schools, I've chatted to parents who've been very interesting. And parents have come up to me and said, yes, you, you, you just scratched the surface. You have no idea. And you're quite right. So often what will happen is a coach will say, Johnny, um, I love you as hooker, but yes, you're about five, six kilos too light. So he's not telling the kid to go off and juice, but he's planting a seed. The kid knows if I'm going to crack yeah. first team, I've got to go put five, six kilos on in three weeks. So, you know, how are you going to do that? Um, it's either a, a lot of chicken and broccoli or there's another shortcut, you know, so, so I, I, I don't think coaches are very helpful in that scenario. Uh, but as I said, for me, it was interesting. I heard so many stories, you know, subsequently, I'd love to have put them all in the book just from parents to say, listen, this goes on. Our boys are under pressure all the time. One parent said, I yanked my boy out of school because I was absolutely not interested in that. 
um, going on. And then John Patricios, who's a, a professor, a very learned guy, um, and he, he tends to deal with boys who've been caught with steroids and often part of their, their counseling. They need to go to him and he'll talk to them. And uh, he uh, put it this way. He sees a lot of boys. So who's really responsible for the testing? Is this something the schools should do more of? Is this the local institutions that obviously are governing this? Or is it maybe down to like SARU or the provincial unions? Because, I mean, the stuff's quite expensive, right? There's a reason why not everyone gets tested. It's not like a, it's not like a COVID test you just do on the side. Well, the great disappointment is that the department, that's the Department of Education, wash their hands. They're not interested. This is a problem they don't need, a problem they don't want, a problem they're not addressing. So they leave it alone. Um, but the ultimate arbiter is SAIDS. That's the SA Institute for Drug-Free Sport. Okay, who do a lot of education, they work very hard with a quite a, a modest budget. It's up to them. The problem with testing is that testing is expensive. So a lot of the testing is targeted. So there's suspicions around a boy, they'll check it out, they'll go in and they'll test, that kind of thing. Um, but several years ago in Boxburg, for instance, uh, two boys were caught uh, dealing steroids and uh, the school acted quickly. The boys were suspended and then they pulled in the whole first team and they tested them all. But that cost the school over 60,000 rand. Wow. You know, out of their budget. So it's, it's quite prohibitive. And SAIDs would love to test far more than they do, but they're limited. You're limited by how much money you have, which is difficult. Um, so you can point fingers at SARU perhaps, but SARU, SARU's key role in this is the education. You know, SARU's job isn't to go around testing boys. Of course, it's in their interests that the game is clean. Sure. And to their credit, they work very hard on, on uh, education, on various campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and unfortunately, somebody like the department could do really to roll it out nationally, an anti-doping campaign or something like that. But that doesn't happen. But I guess there's such a massive role in everything around education because they might look at it and go, what's a couple of big kids playing rugby? But the culture around it is pretty dark. And that's the other thing I love about your book is that it's not just a couple of steroid vials here and there. It's not just a summer where you're going to try something. It becomes a culture of cheating. It becomes a culture of aggression and all kinds of things that are quite skewed. At an impressionable age, one of the one of the coolest interviews you I think you had in there was uh, Mike Bolhaus. And he had this very philosophical um, <laughs> analogy how when steroids comes into the mix, if you were a leopard, you suddenly think you're a lion. Yeah, And again, I don't want to give away too many things in this book because there are just so many great stories like this. But if you put this into where kids are and suddenly they all think they're lions, this isn't just a sport problem anymore. This is a cultural and societal problem. Do you think like maybe that they're not looking at it deep enough like that? Yeah, I, th I think that's a, that's a very good point. Um, for It was pointed out to me. Uh, by several people that often steroids are a gateway as well. Sure. Uh, and not just gateway to drugs, but a gateway to different kind of behaviors. Um, I spoke to, uh, in fact, an, an old boxing pal of mine. We used to box together. He turned pro and, uh, he, he spoke of the psychosis, which is steroid rage. Right. Uh, which is crazy. You know, that's when you absolutely lose it and you hyper aggressive. Uh, he and he, in fact, got into a, a, a match one night with Mikey Schultz in the South. You can just imagine how pretty that was. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty brutal. And, and my pal, his name's Kenny. He's, he's juiced for 30 years. So he's this enormous guy, shaved head, full of tattoos, the absolute stereotype of, uh, of, of the, the gym monkey. And, uh, but he was open enough and honest enough to talk about steroid rage. So I think that is a problem. Uh, no question. It fortunately hasn't manifested itself a whole lot in schoolboy sport. We haven't seen a whole lot of it. But I think if you take enough of it, it can build up and it can happen. So the way I look at it as well is that if 
sport is most the people who are successful are the ones who have won the genetic lottery, so to speak. I mean, mm. Usain Bolt was meant to be the world's fastest man. True. If that guy was working in a supermarket, the world would be a poorer place. I get that. <laughs> but there's money there. You look at a guy like Usain Bolt and go, "Okay, I'm not six foot five. Mm. I haven't got his attributes, but I've got his desire. I've got the work ethic." And that guy over there's got something in his bag. It's going to put two and two together. What are some of the things? Just to kind of give a background, like if a kid is in a position where you're going to take steroids, what does he take, and how much is he taking, it and how long is he taking it to say make that magical ten kilogram push over the summer? You know, it's interesting because two of the guys who who spoke up and and copped it were Javier Robles, the the lock, who now plays at the Sharks, and a guy called Carlo Dafava, who played at the Sharks. And uh, subsequently ended up playing three World Cups for for Italy, uh, but a, but a, a South African guy, and they both spoke about being incredibly weak. They were nowhere with those fitness tests, and that's you know almost like the barrier to entry. If you don't pass those, well, you're out the mix. You sure. know, there's a whole queue of locks and loose forwards waiting to take your place. So for them, there was this enormous pressure. They needed to 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 get get up to those uh, those numbers, and they managed to uh, with the juice. And both of them spoke of taking very short courses. You know, and presumably just to get them through those uh, through those tests. Uh, but of course, it doesn't matter. Um, and my my thinking and my instincts around it is that a lot of guys try stuff in the off season. You know, to get strong in the off season. It's also also they sometimes just use it for recovery. Very seldom is it long term. It's too risky. Sure. Certainly in rugby, um, you're not getting many positives at elite level. So the names you recognize, I recognize, you're not getting a lot of positives. You are in the smaller unions. A couple of guys are copying it. And at schoolboy level, it's happening. And that's partly just because of naivety, I reckon. And in fact, maybe the majority of people I talked about in the book were just, just stupid. You know, They just didn't yeah. think things through. They were naive. Um, you know, And they, they thought they could get away with it. Well, I kept thinking along the lines of this guy knows he's not going to be a professional rugby player. But there's this roll of the dice that they can take. Yeah. They know testing isn't going to be absolutely perfect and exact to every single person trying. So, you know, why not? I'm not going to go to jail for this. I'll be suspended from a sport that I can't play for two years. But if I'm not good enough, I'm not going to play it anyway. So I start thinking like that. And then maybe that's why these kids are taking so many different chances. Because I mean, what's going to happen? And, and that's particularly true. You know, we focused on rugby a little bit on athletics. But in boxing, it's absolutely worth the risk. Boxing so cavalier with regard to steroids. You know, we have guys come here, they test positive, and they go back and they fight. There's no issue um, because uh, uh, whatever punishment is meted out here um, is, is disregarded overseas, and that's how it is. So all, just about all your high-profile boxers, the number one pound-for-pound pound guy, Canelo Alvarez, has been bust for steroids. Tyson Fury has been bust for steroids. Shane Mosley has been bust. Evander Holyfield has been bust. Uh, they've all had turns. In boxing, it just – there's there's – Nobody frowns at you or, or looks at you sideways because you've been bust. There's, uh, you know, they just carry on with it uh, as if as if uh, things are normal. And unfortunately, you know, that's true locally as well. Guys have been bust and uh, they carry on. It's just it's it's bizarre, but that's how it is. Is that because boxing is so fragmented? I mean, when I look at UFC, they didn't used to have tests. Mm. A guy like Vito Belfort was like, yeah. he was everything, muscles on muscles, and then mm. suddenly. Dana White was like, okay, well, we need to try and make this a bit better. I mean, if you go, th if you actually want a great sporting history, go to the history of UFC and how that sport has changed and evolved to become a commercial success. One of the things was is they wanted to get testing, and so he brought Wider into it. And then because of that, because of the centralization and all of that, suddenly it became a lot cleaner. Boxing obviously has got all these different federations, but I still have no idea about. So do you think that that's mostly because of the, the reason? 
is so fragmented that people can then just sort of control their own little scandals. I think so. No question. Uh, for instance, the World Boxing Council, the WBC, they work very closely with uh, with uh, uh, the what's called the the voluntary uh, uh, doping agency, uh, which is which is obviously laudable. But the WBA don't. The IB, IBF don't. The WBO don't. Um, so it's uh, it's very clunky. It's very messy. But ultimately, how I see it is, boxing is run as a business, and it's in no one's interest to have your elite athletes caught. So why test? You know, if, if there's, if they run that risk, uh, there are some fights where, uh, it's mandated, where testing is mandated, but both sides have to agree. And, you know, that's, uh, I suppose that's quite encouraging, but it's very hit and miss and it's certainly not standard. Is that why the Mayweather Pacquiao fight didn't happen? Was that got to do with drug testing? There was a, I remember a while back there was a particular fight that everyone wanted to see, but one of them didn't want to do drug testing. Yes, that's right. And many opted not to do drug testing. And certainly pictures flew around social media of, you know, how Manny was looking with his shirt off and uh, it was all very suggestive and what have you. And uh, that was one of the many reasons, you know, there was commercially. Uh, and of course, you're also dealing with two major egos, um, but you also had rival TV networks, rival promoters. It was a very, very hard fight to to put to bed. So there was another thing that I found so interesting about that. Like you said, you know, because I always think rugby and young rugby is the perfect environment for steroids because you need to recover from injuries because you've got a very small window to make an impression and you need to put on the muscles. So I can see it like that's the hotbed for steroid use. One of the things that I was interested about was how things like marijuana, that still is a banned substance. Um, cocaine or like some of the more recreational stuff is more like banned substances. Mm. I mean, we know that if you're a professional sports person and you're going to go play a certain sport, smoking a spliff isn't really going to help you. Um, a few lines of cocaine the night before isn't really going to help your performance. Why is it you feel that those items are still on the list? I'll tell you why, because one of Wada's cornerstones is that they ban any substance that affects your performance. So even negatively. Such as, oh, okay. such as a spliff or something. But the very interesting thing locally, you know, as the laws have relaxed around, about, around marijuana use in South Africa, you know, you can, you can light up and you can have a smoke in your own house, that kind of thing is, is also the, the it's far less punitive now, the measures. So you as an athlete bust for marijuana today, you're likely to get off of the warning, which, which wasn't always the case. Of course, if it happens two or three times, it's, it's going to become more punitive, but, uh, SAIDS is very aware that it, it, you know, culturally and historically, um, it's always been around. It's, it's not likely to improve performance. So they, you'll probably get a, get a rap on the knuckles, but not more than that. Um, uh, cocaine less so, but for, and cocaine, in fact, has only been around local cricket and football, uh, where a guy's at a party and he might do a line or two, something like that. But it, it's certainly, uh, not cynical in my view. No, I wouldn't say so either. I say it's a byproduct of success for most people because they just party hard and they feel they're entitled to. True, true. You've had some very interesting interviews within this book that a lot of it's structured upon. Um, you've already touched on it. What were your sort of favorites and did they perhaps change your perception on a couple of stories or give you insights you didn't have previously? Yeah, so one of my favorites, and it goes back about 10 years was David George, who was uh, an elite cyclist, cyclist yeah. yes, uh, went to a couple of Olympic games. He was he was a star. He was really good. And uh, David's story was interesting because he got caught, and his his pro career began with U.S. Postal. Mm -hmm. Among his teammates was Ron Armstrong, the one and only. Yeah. yeah. And funny enough, I asked David many questions, but the one question he didn't answer was whether Lance was the one who turned him onto it. He said, I'm, I'm not going to go there, you know, but we, we, we chatted over dinner one night. Is that because you signed NDAs? Well, 
you know, I don't know, maybe you don't dislance, who knows? Um, so we sat over dinner and he was really revealing and he, he explained himself. Uh, he was very open, very honest. And so Sage, we're going to throw the book at him. And he said to them, hold on, hold on. Before you do that, he said, I can help you. And he turned whistleblower and Khalid Khalant, who heads up Sage, he spoke about this kind of very strange dance that they had for a couple of months, you know, where they were chatting to each other. It was like, it was like, uh, punch and counterpunch, punch. punch punch and counterpunch, and they were just trying to establish each other's bona fides. And essentially what David was doing, he was saying to them, listen, I'll show you how to catch the cheats. You know, these, these are the loopholes I used. And finally they came to an agreement. And so David, David, he, he did, he did get banned, but he turned whistleblower and he helped Sage, which was very interesting. Um, I, in preparation for the book, I reconnected with him. And he said, yeah, yeah, let's talk. And then I phoned him again and he, we had a short, brief conversation and he said, I'll come back to you. And he never did, which is, so he was interesting. Another, um, interesting one for me was a guy called Theo Peterson. Uh, he's a legendary figure in the Eastern Cape. He, he coaches rugby at a school called Timbelechle, which is a school in an impoverished region of the Eastern Cape. Uh, he's had great success. Uh, one year they were named the SA school of the year at the sports awards. He sometimes trains, uh, gets Danny Gerber out to help him. And it's all these black boys and they've got lots of talent and there's no nutrition. You know, they're eating buns yeah. and, and things like this. And he, he had a, he had a young, uh, a young wing who was, uh, that very difficult age. He was 16 and, but he, there was a lot of peer pressure. He loved doing weights and pumping up and he was a wing and he had a lot of promise. And, uh, so a bull, his name was Bull Mendu and Bull went to Theo and he said, listen, coach, what must I do? And, so the coach said, no, no, just stick to your buns and things. And then he got a friend who worked for a supplement company. And the oak said, no, no, just use supplements. Anyway, uh, he was quite, you know, he kept an eye on, on young Bull. And then one day he got a call to say, Bull is dead, Bull is dead. And he rushed around and he found Bull. Uh, he was staying in a little apartment and Bull was dead and the steroid was, steroids were there. That killed him. You know, you can just imagine it was absolutely dirty, dirty steroids. So Theo was an interesting guy. And, and partly not, not just because of that particular story, just because of the good he does, you know, and he's, he's people like that are important in our sport. Um, there was, uh, you know, Kenny, the, the bodybuilder I spoke about, his story was, uh, was amazing, you know, how he justified it. And it goes back to your earlier question about performance. He's not cheating anybody. He's not even going to bodybuilding shows and competing, that kind of thing. Right. He just does it for self-fulfillment, uh, which is, which is cool. Um, John Patricios was amazing because I, I spoke to John and, and he said, you know, sometimes, uh, th these people don't realize how serious steroids are until the, 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 their bodies in the morgue and you slice them open, you know, and he, he sort of spoke about how serious it is. And it must uh, be quite a frustrating standpoint from him as well, because he has so much knowledge and he sees the same old pe person coming time and time again. I mean, that guy with the experience that he has in the industry. And even though he knows what to say to people, people will still do their own thing. As you say, like some people are, are quite stupid. Some people are very ignorant. Some people are just very determined because that's what they think that what they want in life. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the real difficulty with steroids is that, is that not a lot of it results in sort of great peer pressure. There's no stigma. You know, you see the big guy walk around the gym all day, but nobody's like disgusted by it. You know, nobody's turned off. And I don't think anybody's turned off enough to say, geez, I'm never going to try that, that mm. kind of thing. Uh, so the absence of stigma, even in rugby or something like that, you should be absolutely shunned. Uh, 
I'm not saying there's no room for rehabilitation. I mean, there must be rehabilitation. There's no question about it. Guys can come back and do a lot of good, um, as, as people have done. I mean, Johan Ackermann ultimately down the line is probably going to be in line for the Springbok coach's job one day. Sure. Uh, that, that kind of thing. And then you have a guy like Carlo Del Fava who, who works at the Sharks and he counsels young boys and he, and he warns against the dangers of steroids, that kind of thing. So, you know, you, you can, you can turn a, a very poor situation into a positive situation. Yeah, without sounding cynical, I mean, it's just, I feel like it's just going to be part of us for such a long time now. It'll never be taken away because everyone will cut a corner in some way. And there's too much money to be earned. Exactly. The risk is always worth it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not going to, like, as I said just a little bit earlier, like, if you get caught, it just means you're not going to, it's not going to work for two or three years and you can come back even. But it's going back to supplements. And this is something that I've always been unaware of because like I've tried various supplements. I like training. I've been around athletes all the time. And there's certain supplements that I care about. I care about a whey protein because mm. I'm naturally an ectomorph. I battle put on weight. Okay. I wouldn't mind putting a little bit on because I just mm. feel like I, I know how I'd like to be as a human being. I don't do any of the pre-workouts or any of the other kind of stuff which gives you huge amounts of energy. Mm. If you were, say, an athlete, and a lot of them always just, you know, plead ignorance around what they've taken what is on the shelf that's probably something that will make you test positive i mean these pre-workouts are those things to kind of stay away from are they quite dodgy um are fringe brands the ones that may be kicking up some poor results like like, what are the sort of no-go areas or sort of red flags in the supplement industry as as a product so to speak you know it's such a good question you know demart penner who was an efc champion and demart was sponsored by biogen and if you if you had to ask me to list the top five brands out there biogen would be one of them sure you know so it was him and there was a footballer as well who got who got caught for the same thing using biogen so i don't want to disbiogen because they they in fact changed their labeling and all sorts to make it uh uh, you know to to their position uh, very clear i think i would i would be i wouldn't be so certain to point fingers at brands i think the fringe brand certainly a little bit questionable but rather you know you get those gym shops so i'm not talking about your your chains at like diskim and and what have you i'm talking about those gym shops because often a lot of that dirty stuff is traded through there and and i mentioned this because there was a guy from Boxburg who had a, had one of these shops, a guy called Tyler Eckermans, and he went down to Cape Town for a, a party weekend a couple of years ago, and he, he was he was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a very very dark side. So the suggestion, I mean, I've spoken to mates of his, and they say, well, he didn't trade so much in steroids, but he did a little bit. But steroid wasn't what what got him killed, whatever. But it was still very suggestive that. You know, there is quite a dark underbelly, uh, to, to steroids. Um, but to go back to your question, I would honestly, I would, I would be as an elite sportsman, I would be super, super careful, um, what supplements I use. And even so, I would, I would go to my federation and ask for their approval. I mean, having said that, you know, Chili Boy, uh, uh, got done, uh, Bjorn Basson got done by, by supplements that had been, been approved by SA Rugby and issued by SA Rugby. And in fact, after Chili Boy's first test, SA Rugby apologized for that. So it's, um, it's a vexed world. It's, it's, it's a very, very difficult environment. Just be, just, um, have your wits about you. You have to be very, very cautious about what you use. Yeah, I guess the reason why I asked the supplement question is like, is there education around that? So say, for instance, you're a youngster, you've now signed for the Bulls under 19 academy team, whatever, whatever. Are they going through sort of things like, guys, this is what the list says you can't have. This is where the stuff might come from. Um, are they told to bring in their supplements? Is this something that's happening on a sort of, say, fundamental level? 
Well, I, I tell you, the Bulls had a big case uh, a couple of years ago, a youngster called Simon van Hastien, who joined in the same Afi's team as Erges Sneeman. You know, he was a big, strong boy playing Craven Week, had great ambitions to be a pro rugby player, and he got done. And that was just a couple of months off the previous Craven Week where several uh, guys have been caught, but also um, SA Rugby had, and SAIDS had rolled out this big uh, anti-doping campaign. And part of his defense was, I didn't get told any of this by the Bulls. Nobody told us any of this. So the Bulls very sharply responded. And so they uh, they do have anti-doping education. They offer it. Um, so any any young guy who comes into the academy, is exposed to uh, to the realities of of using steroids and the dangers of using steroids, and I dare say that's repeated at at unions um, around the country. Uh, it definitely it, it used to be quite lax, but uh, after Craven Week went through quite a tough time, um, rugby pulled pulled its socks up, and now it's it's a very difficult one to plead ignorance um, because the messaging and the the, the campaigns around around doping are prominent. I guess it's like learning the rules of your sport. You know, yes. you've got to know what's happening in the field and you've got to know what you're taking outside of that because your body's your business. Mm. It's like you can't suddenly go, oh, I don't know what tax was. You know, it's the same thing, essentially. It's all in the same professional realm. Exactly. And uh, I had uh, a, a comrade's gold medalist on the woman's side contact me to say, you know, it's so disheartening because you're running and you know those around you who are dirty. And I dare say at, at, at elite rugby level or school rugby level, you know who's using and who who isn't. So I think it's a... It, you know, it's 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 a it's a long shot to to plead ignorance. Yeah, totally. You say comrades level there. I often think, you know, I've obviously seen Icarus on Netflix. Most people have, although I just thought it was quite boring because I find cycling very boring. <laughs> I but, loved it. <laughs> but if if someone can do that, and again, it's not really gonna, as I say, it's not gonna kill me. I'm just gonna do this for a bit. I'd love to know how many recreational cyclists, the guys that are <sighs> doing the ninety four point seven, or they're doing like the Cape Town cycle tour, or whatever. I would love to, I mean, obviously you don't have an answer to this, but I'd love to know how far it goes down with this. It's like just a bit of EPO, you know, just a bit. Well, in fact, it does happen. And I'll tell you why it happens. I was told at the Cape Epic, for instance. Yeah. So you have your corporate exec and he's not racing to place on the podium, but he's racing to beat his mate down the road from the other corporate. Sure. You know, that's he what they He wants to look do. good. Bragging rights are a big deal. Completely. So he's ending 77th. But his pal is, is ending like 85th. So as long as he's above, he's, he's above him, uh, he's happy. So that's why you get those, those odd positives where, um, some very arbitrary guy will get, will test positive. It happens. The same thing happens in bowls. What, you know, what have you? Um, where sometimes people are targeted, they go test and they, and they test positive. It's for that very reason. So, you know, you're kidding yourself if you think it's just at the elite level. Yeah, totally. I think the moment you make progress, and this is one of the things about weight training in a healthy sense, mm. like once you start doing better, you just want to keep doing better. Of you course. want to keep making these different things, but there's got to be a ceiling in your mind, which goes back to the, that Mike Bolhez thing. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> don't go further than who you are, really. Understand mm. that you're this and you can get better than this. Don't be, be a leopard who wants to become a lion. Yeah. I, I love that analogy Great so much. <laughs> If like so, going back to Ben Johnson, because I think when people say steroids, he would be like the co the cover boy forever and ever. Yes, yes. When he lined up at Seoul, all the muscles. I mean, Carl Lewis was probably one of the greatest athletes, pound for pound, obviously in his mm. time. And you saw Ben Johnson next to him. The guy was an absolute ogre. He was huge, but athletic and fast. Mm. And anyway, what do you reckon would happen if athletes were just allowed to go and do whatever? And you had a result, a race like the 100 meters. I mean, do you think that there's only so much you can do as a human being? Or do you think that unregulated, there's a sub nine second 100 meter out there? 
Yeah, it's a good question, and I, and I, I say it's I've a good question. I've always wondered this, but because I, a lot of people have suggested, you know, why don't we just let everybody do what they want? You know, uh, which should be uh, incredible. I mean, I think you create some real monsters, uh, no question. Uh, I, you know, you look at Bolt's nine fifty eight, which is otherworldly. I mean, it is mm. staggering. Uh, you know, even when a guy runs a nine seven, he's not he's not terribly close. Uh, but imagine if, and Bolt, to his credit, throughout his career, there wasn't a whiff of anything, of any scandal, any suggestion. But imagine you put him on juice. You know, what would he have done? I think he might have gone close to nine. Yeah, as much as I, I don't endorse steroids at all, not just, I'm not just saying because of our interview today, but I think it's terrible. But the mind always goes to, like, what could have been possible with that? Like, what could you actually do if you were a science experiment, essentially? Because sprinting would be a, a great one to have it because you need the power and the explosive strength. Well, I think, I think Johnson suggested it. I mean, just remember how ripped he was in those bloodshot eyes and he was a, he was a beast. You know, and Carl Lewis, of course, had won all those, uh, uh Olympic gold medals and, and Johnson just smoked him. It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't amazing. even close. Now, is it true that he only got bust because he forgot to take his masking agent? Or was it just so much in there that he was gonna? Yeah, listen, I think it was a question of, of, of when rather than if, definitely. You know, and then he claimed his bottle had been tainted and things at the start line and what have you. But, but over the years, he's, he's gradually, he's, he's copped it, you know, and his coach, Ben Francis, uh, Francis, uh, Trevor Francis got, uh, got done as well. Um, and then, I mean, the really sad thing is that subsequently through the years, you see how many hundred meter medalists have been bust. I mean, it's a staggering amount yeah, exactly. of, of people. So where to from here, really, because it's not really going to go away because the desire is there and people will cut corners. People are always going to take chances. What do you think are some of the conversations that really should be had? I mean, we obviously mentioned a big thing about SA schoolboy rugby. So I think that's a good place to kind of maybe mm. focus this question on. What do you think are the questions that should be had right now that maybe aren't being had? Well, you know, very encouraged by the emergence of, of players like Cheslin Colby. You know, or even you look at a guy like uh, like Makazola or Sabu and Corsi or something like that, and it shows Kirby you the aren't so of the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great, or or Williams, who's tiny. Mm. You know, the, the the scrum half. You look at that, and you've got to say, well, because the DNA of South African rugby, strictly speaking, is Walker Smith. He's a forward that isn't exactly. You know, Warren Whiteley. Yeah. You know, he he wasn't a, a bruiser, and it shows you there's still room for guys with those twinkle toes. Uh, you know, with those great skills. You don't always need these big hulking beasts. Having said that, you know, our DNA is to run. Over people, um, you know, it, it's pretty cool that that in recent years we saw at the World Cup, we saw in the World Cup final, you know, where, where the box showed that they could actually play. So hopefully there can be a kind of a departure, um, you know, sort of emotionally from from that uh, uh, reputation for just producing these big hulking monsters, you know, these these uh, these unthinking beasts. Uh, but but I dare say that's probably being a little bit a uh, little bit uh, optimistic. Um, I think what's People need to be told about or educated about alternatives to doping. Um, they certainly are, you know, uh, and, and like John Patricius, he, he, he absolutely wouldn't advocate supplements. He's changed because he realizes that no matter how much education you have out there, people are going to use supplements. So in fact, if they're going to use supplements, educate them about using the right supplements, uh, clean supplements, that kind of thing. Uh, but, but, you know, Youngsters, I think, especially need to be told, you know, the importance of diet, the importance of nutrition, those kind of things. And you can get big and strong. Um, and, and just how damaging steroids can be. Um, but, you know, in the sort of broader picture about what must change and what's going to change, I don't think a whole lot's going to change because, uh, we were speaking earlier about that, uh, that newsletter around the, 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 the commerce around sport and have you, there's more money than ever. 
And while there's money to be made, and in a country like South Africa, where there's an opportunity to step perhaps out of poverty mm. or, or to step out of a very ordinary life and become a star or to earn a lot of money is, is huge. So that makes the risk versus reward ratio, um, you know, an interesting one. Yeah, it really is. And again, people don't want to also do, it's not just stepping out of poverty. They want to step out of boring jobs. They don't want to finish school and become a plumber. Yeah, uh, true. They don't want to finish school and become an architect. Plumbing can wait. <laughs> exactly. I want to look like that guy. Instagram, TikTok, you know, people are getting likes. And, you know, I always look at a brand like, say, Gymshark. Mm. Again, this isn't a personal attack. I have no disaffiliation or whatever the opposite of affiliation is. But mm. they they market that kind of stuff. You've got kids there that are getting these Gymshark deals. They want 18, 19, 20, but they are ginormous. They're the size of Chris Hemsworth, who's probably also in the juice. Just, I saw some pictures yesterday. I was blown away. I couldn't believe how big he's got. And the thing is, what makes it very kind of boring is that he now has online training programs that you buy of him doing push-ups and pull-ups. It's like, you didn't get that from push-ups and pull-ups. <laughs> but then again, like, you know, where there's no governing body. He's not doing anything illegal. Yeah. You can't jail the guy for that. It's maybe fraud. It's disinformation, whatever. But it's just a really, really bad example. So I don't know. I mean, look, it's one of those things that in life you've also got to be an adult. You've mm. got to realize that's just like taking any kind of drug. There's downsides, massive downsides. And then I just think that's been such an important part of your book is that it's not to be salacious and tell horrible stories mm. of drug use and try to look, you know, from a tabloid perspective. Your book has this great theme of just going through different stories, framing why it was maybe taken, framing the environment of the sport, but then the ramifications of that. So I think it's not really even a cautionary tale. I just think you've, you've absolutely encompassed everything that needs to be told within steroids right now. And it'd be great maybe in a few years' time that you do have a follow-up to this because maybe some people will learn from these mistakes, will learn from these lessons. I'm not hugely hopeful around it, but I think this definitely, if the conversations are had, I reckon progress could definitely be made. Well, that's the optimist in me. Yeah, Ben, thanks. I must say that when I started the project, I had a very kind of black and white view of steroids and steroid use, but talking to people and doing my research, it increasingly got gray. You know, there's a middle area, and I think it's still a little bit gray as well, is I used to be quite overly critical of guys who get caught and, and, and people. And of course, they all have their defenses and there are no doubt people have been caught. They've just made, you know, terrible mistakes. Uh, there are people whose, whose stuff has been tainted as well, but it's very seldom, you know, open and shut. It's very seldom the case is what it appears. Um, it's, 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 quite a tangled story um and you know i just hope i've I, i've done the subject justice well all i can say is congrats it was a great book i really did cover to cover it and probably quicker than normally i read books but the it was just so great taking on like googling these different people and the different sort of insights around these people the different sports they were because it opened my eyes to a lot of things maybe it has opened my eyes to things i don't want my eyes open towards but it's a ph phenomenal book Guns and Needles, it is a journey into the heart of South African sports stories and drug culture. Where else can people find you and your work? Uh, cool. So I have a I have a blog called Mumble in the Jungle. I, I'm on Twitter where, where I check in with, with uh, you, Ben, and, and certainly other people around sport. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, you know, happy to take DMs. Um, and then my day job, Super Sports. So, uh, you know, that's what uh, keeps me busy. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Next week, and the final episode of Season 1 of the State of Sport, kind of segueing quite nicely from the story of drugs and sport, we're chatting to Scotty McIntosh. Now, Scotty McIntosh is not only my conditioning coach, he's far more famous to be the conditioning coach of local fighters such as Heather Volmerantz, Karen Simon, and Drickus Duplessis, as you know, who is in the UFC. 
rearranging people's faces. Now, the reason I want to bring Scotty in is because there's a particular strength and conditioning format that he applies to his fighters, which I believe gives them an extra edge, where it's someone might think steroids is helping them get performance-wise. Scotty's got an incredible take on strength and conditioning and how it works in combat sport. Here's my guest next week. I hope you can join me then.